Good morning once again. And to all the dads here, happy Father's Day. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. As we are racing through the Gospel of Matthew here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we are in a section that runs from verses 24 to 6. A pivotal passage for us as Christians. Where it says in verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Indeed. This is a very familiar passage to those of us who are Christians. And yet at the same time, many Christians are really, I think, kind of clueless as to what Jesus is actually saying here. Now, we know it deals with the cross, and there's nothing more central to Christianity than the cross. We certainly understand what the cross is from a literal standpoint, the two beams upon which Jesus Christ was crucified. But Jesus is not speaking here literally, at least not to the majority of those who would become his disciples down through the centuries, certainly to the men who were standing there that day and who heard these words from Jesus' mouth, certainly they uh, were in danger of being crucified for following him. And he was no doubt uh, trying to get them to count the cost, as he would go on to say later on. But again, literal crucifixion is something that most Christians will never experience. So what then did the Lord mean that we're all supposed to take of our cross and follow him if we're going to be his disciples. What are we supposed to make of that? What does that actually mean? Well, guys, as we have said before, every text is a context. You want to make sure that you look at a passage in the context in which it was spoken. Now, the context takes us back to verse 13, roughly, where Jesus and his disciples were up in Caesarea Philippi, which is north at the base of Mount Hermon, where the Jordan River, the headwaters of the Jordan River begin. And while he was up there, he turns to his disciples one day and says to them, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And of course, they begin to give to him all the common ideas or opinions that people had at that time as to who Jesus was. Some said, you know, some think you're John the Baptist, uh, come back from the dead. Others think you're Jeremiah or, or Elijah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter had a shining moment, which didn't last too long as we've studied this passage, but he did have a shining moment. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter has a shining moment here. As I said, it didn't last long. Jesus was praising him for being a spiritual man, one second, and then we're going to read in a second how he became a carnal dirtbag not long after that. But he says in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed but be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, Peter was the spokesman for the group. Peter said what they were all thinking but were afraid to say. Peter was speaking, I believe, for all of them. 
all of them believed that Jesus was Messiah. And as Messiah, they also believed that he was going to very shortly lead them in a revolt against Rome and establish his kingdom on the earth. Why did they believe that? Well, from the time they were small children, they were taught that when Messiah finally comes, he was going to throw off the yoke of Gentile oppression, which at this time was Roman oppression. And when he did that, he would establish a glorious new kingdom on the earth from which he would reign visibly, literally from Jerusalem as king, and the Jewish people would reign alongside of him as his prime ministers. So when they came to believe Jesus was the Messiah, you have to understand something. Their desire to hitch their wagon to Jesus' star was not really completely unselfish. I mean, there were a lot of selfish interests, I think, underlying their decision to follow Jesus. They wanted to be prime ministers in the kingdom. They wanted to have the prestige and the wealth and the honor that came from that position. But now Jesus is talking about being crucified. He's talking about dying. Look, a dead Messiah can't fulfill any of our hopes and dreams. And that's why Peter, I believe, speaking on behalf of all of them, begins then to rebuke the Lord for saying this kind of thing. Lord, certainly this, this can't happen to you. How are we going to be prime ministers if you die? was the idea. Thinking purely in carnal terms. Well, in verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. So, again, you know, fame is a short-lived thing. Uh, one minute the disciples are thinking, Wow, Peter's really getting spiritual. He gets revelations from God. Next minute Jesus is, is you know, ripping Peter to shreds of Satan. All right. Uh, Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And the reason Jesus called Peter Satan was not because he actually was Satan, but because he was doing the thing that Satan tried to get Jesus to do earlier in his ministry. Again, backing up to Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan by John and was let out into, and the Spirit came upon him, he was led out into the wilderness where Satan came against him and tempted him three times. The final temptation was where he took him up to a mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment's time, and said, all these are mine, I can give them to whomever I will, I will give them to you if you'll bow down and worship me. What was Satan, in a sense, saying to the Lord? He was saying, in a sense, I know why you've come. You've come to die so that you can reign over the kingdoms of this world. Guess what? They're mine. Isn't Satan called the God of this world? Didn't Adam and Eve give over control of the world to the devil when they disobeyed the Lord in the garden and obeyed Satan? So Satan wasn't lying. He did have control of the world's kingdoms. He says, look, you don't have to go to the cross to reign. I'll give you all the glory, all the honor, all the prestige that you will eventually get someday. I'll give it to you right now. Just don't go to the cross. Guys, that is a classic satanic temptation to get you to opt for immediate gratification right now, which often involves disobeying what God is calling you to do. But that is how Satan works. All He appeals to that fleshly nature of ours for immediate gratification. Instead of, you know, living for the Lord right now and someday getting that glory in heaven and that joy and all. He's like, why go to the cross, die now, and wait till then? You can have it all now. Just don't go to the cross. I'll give it to you. That's essentially what the devil was trying to get Jesus to do, to bypass the cross and opt for immediate gratification 
put himself before his father's will. Well, praise God, Jesus Christ didn't do that, would never have done that. If he did do it, none of us could be saved. So Peter might have thought he had Jesus' best interests in mind when he tried to discourage him from going to the cross, but the cross was the very reason for which Jesus had come into the world. The cross was essential. If we were going to live forever with him, he had to die for our sins. He had to die in our place. I'll tell you this, there are many today who are trying to get people in the church now to opt for bypassing the cross by telling them, and this is a very popular teaching, it's everywhere, you've heard it many times, TV, radio. Look, Jesus Christ didn't come that you might have to go to the cross. He came that you can have riches and fame and fortune and material things. This is why he came. Don't listen to those people who try to tell you that you have to deny yourself. You're God's kids. You're, you're the king's kids. And you know, as parents, you want the best for your kids, don't you? I mean, if you can shop at Nordstrom's for your children, you're not going to shop at Kmart. You're going to take them and buy them, you know, buy the best for them. Sorry if anybody works for Kmart. I didn't mean to. <laughs> just saying, okay? And they try to get people to think, look, don't go to the cross because you can have all the stuff, all the glory, all the honor, fame, fortune, whatever, right now. And many Christians are opting, and I'm not so sure they all are Christians. I know they go to church, but Paul said in the last days, many would fill the church who would not want to hear sound doctrine, but would gather to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears telling them what they want to hear. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an end times thing we're seeing today. But look, to try to get Jesus to bypass the cross, as Peter tried to do, was tantamount to teaming up with Satan against the purposes of God. And let me just say this once again. A crossless Christianity is a Christless Christianity. And a Christless Christianity won't save anybody. And it was in that context that Jesus then said, Peter, you're trying to get me to bypass the cross. Don't you understand If I don't die, you can't live. And if you don't die, others are not going to be able to live also. If a grain of wheat is not buried and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And he was talking about us. Okay? We are all individuals. And it takes the death of self for us to be able to be used by the Holy Spirit to bring forth much fruit. In other words, many to Christ. So you're trying to get me to not go to the cross, Peter. The cross is essential. And if anyone does not deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me, they can't be my disciple. Now, as I said earlier, all Christians are familiar with Jesus' words here. Yet many don't understand what taking up their cross really means. Maybe you've heard this. I have. Uh, Maybe you've heard a Christian say, sometimes not even a Christian, say something like this. Um, I have severe arthritis or some other debilitating chronic illness that they have to live with each day. But you know what? It's the cross that God has given me to bear. Or maybe you've heard something like this. My unsaved husband or my overbearing mother-in-law. You know, they're the cross that God has given me to bear. Well, I don't know how rough they are to live with. Okay, I'm not trying to minimize your pain. I'm just saying... That has nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about here when he said that we are to take up our cross. 
The cross, metaphorically speaking, simply represents death. The death of our will, our desires, our goals, in essence, the death of self to follow Jesus, the one who said, I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And that's what the gospel looks like, by the way, uh, as it's being lived out in the life of a person who has embraced it and now embodies it in his or her daily life. That is how they live their lives. I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. However, it's not an easy message to accept. It's a very difficult thing to really not only get your mind around, but get your life behind. We're all selfish by nature. But I'll tell you this, it's absolutely essential if you're going to be a follower of Christ. As somebody has said, salvation is free, but it will cost you everything to follow Jesus. And as Christians, we understand what that means, don't we? That's because the gospel is not just about exercising a moment, a moment of faith in Jesus for salvation and then going back to business as usual, as a lot of church-going, professing Christians think it is. Again, salvation is the miracle of a moment. But discipleship is the commitment of a lifetime. It's a lifelong commitment, just like when a person gets married. We had the privilege of, of going to a wedding uh, yesterday. In fact, there was two weddings that our church was involved in. And the weddings are a beautiful thing, right? And as a pastor, I've officiated at many weddings over the years. And let me tell you something. In the vows, we always make it a point as pastors to say, look, you are entering into a love relationship with each other. But remember this, the kind of love that is going to cement your marriage together is God's love. And God's love is agape love. And agape love is a total commitment, not just feelings. That's why as we lead them through the vows, is they repeat after the pastor to one another that I vow to remain by your side in the good times, the bad times, in sickness or in death, or excuse me, in sickness or health, till death do us part. What are we saying to each other? We're saying, I commit myself to you for the rest of my life. Marriage is based on commitment. In fact, in the New Testament, it teaches that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are actually entering into marriage with him. But here's the problem today. Marriage represents, in a very small way, our relationship with Jesus. We know marriage is built on, on God's love, which is commitment. But today, love has been redefined. All right? Love is no longer defined as a commitment that I make to you, that I'm going to stay by your side no matter what for the rest of my life. We're letting Hollywood redefine love, and Hollywood has defined love as a feeling. And essentially, it goes like this. I will love you and I will be married to you as long as you continue to make me feel a certain way. If the day should ever come when you stop making me feel a certain way, I'll just get rid of you and find somebody else who will make me feel that way. That kind of is how young couples, for the most part, not always, but for the most part, are entering into marriage today. It's all based on feelings. And when the feelings subside, and let me just say this to you, if it's not commitment that binds your marriage together, you're going to go through storms. Life contains storms. There is not going to be all blue skies and smooth sailing. And it's not the feelings that are going to hold your marriage together in those, during those storms. It's the commitment you make to each other. Ultimately, the commitment you make to God as you make that commitment to each other. But if you enter into marriages based on feelings, 
that marriage is going to be very, very shaky. I don't think it's going to last at all. And yet what happens is people in our society, because they've allowed Hollywood basically to redefine marriage as a, or love as a feeling, they tend to bring that into their relationship with Jesus, which is a marriage as well. And now they're not really entering into their relationship with Jesus based on commitment. In fact, it has very little to do with commitment in many people's hearts with regard to coming to Christ. Now it's pretty much all based on feelings. And again, that's why many are not lasting in the relationship with Jesus. Because it isn't easy to follow Jesus. There are going to be storms and trials and persecutions. And if feelings are the thing you base your relationship with Jesus on, you're in big trouble. We used to sing a song here at Calvary in the old days. Maybe some of you remember, some of you old timers remember it. Bob, some others. I have decided to follow Jesus. Part of it went like this. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. Well, the song of the church today seems to be, I have decided to follow Jesus as long as he gives me what I want and makes me feel good about myself. And I'll only follow if my friends go with me. Or else I'm turning back, I'm turning back. It reminds me of the so-called commitment, quote-unquote, Jacob was willing to make with God if God met Jacob's conditions. You don't have to turn to it. Let me read it to you. Genesis 28, verses 20 and 21. Here's what Jacob said. All right? Then Jacob made this vow. If God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing... And if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. Well, thanks a lot. Okay? I mean, how shallow. I think God was up in heaven going, oh, boy, I better really come through because, you know, I want him to commit himself to me, you know? I mean, how shallow and self-serving is that? But that is the very same commitment many people make. It's, at least it's in their mind. They may not verbalize it like that. But it's in their mind when they start to follow Jesus. It's like this. God, I'm going to give you a chance now. You better come through for me. You better meet my needs, take care of my family. You better do all the things I want you to do. Because if you do, I'll let you be my God. But if not, we're done. And I'm sure the Lord is in heaven going, Oh, I don't want to mess this up. Oh, man, the pressure. How am I going to deal with the pressure? You know, I mean, come on. No wonder the church is in trouble today because our commitment is so messed up. It's not even a commitment. It's a lot of self-serving feelings. All right, let's look at this passage. Let's kind of take it apart, examine it under a microscope, if you will. Let's fully understand all that Jesus is saying to us through it, okay? The first thing we see is the principle of discipleship in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, Just a couple of observations before we actually get into what he was directly saying here. First of all, I want you to understand something. He talks about us being disciples. Discipleship, whether you realize it or not, is synonymous with salvation. Now, I bring that up because there's there's a basic misconception a lot of Christians have about discipleship. They believe it's separate from salvation. 
They believe that a person can put their faith in Jesus and be saved, and yet sometime down the road get serious and become a disciple. And when you confront them about, and usually that is rooted in this desire to be a Christian now, but not get serious about the Lord until sometime down the road. Why? Because I'm not really ready to let go of the world. I want to be a Christian. I'm going to heaven. But I'm not really ready to let go of the world yet. So get saved today. Get serious sometime down the road. And when you confront them about that, that's basically what they tell you. Well, I know I'm not living for the Lord right now, but again, I, I really plan to get serious someday and become a disciple. The problem is, if you search the New Testament diligently, you'll see the word Christian and disciple or disciple and salvation, there are synonymous. A Christian is a disciple and a disciple is a Christian. They're one and the same. Anyone who considers themselves a Christian who is not a disciple who is not taking up their cross to follow Jesus with all their hearts, well, it's a, there's a possibility that they are fooling themselves about their salvation. But the second thing I want to bring out from this verse 24 is that discipleship is a choice. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me. Look, God never forces us to believe in or to follow after Jesus. He simply presents us with a choice, doesn't he? But then he makes sure that we understand that whatever choice we make, whatever decision we decide to make with regard to Jesus, that decision is going to have eternal consequences attached to it. You know, life is nothing more than a series of choices that we make. Granted, some choices are more important than others and will impact our lives more than others, like who I marry or if I go to college or not. But every choice will affect our life in some way. But there's one choice that will not only affect your life now, but will impact it for all eternity. And that's the decision as to whether or not you're going to follow Jesus. Now, a decision to follow Jesus is always preceded by a desire to follow Jesus. The decision, and Jesus said, you know, whoever desires to come after me, all right? A desire precedes the decision. What brings a person to the place where they desire to make that decision to follow Jesus. Well, let me just say this. Oftentimes it is birth, the desire to follow Jesus is birth out of all the consequences that come from us making all the bad decisions we have made over the course of our life before we accept Christ. I mean, I don't know what brought you to Jesus. Very few people in my mind have ever come to Jesus because things were going great in their life. Okay? on the top of their game, okay? They were on the mountaintop, and one day decided, things are going so great, I'm going to deny myself, pick up my cross, and become a Christian. doesn't usually happen that way. I'm not saying it's never happened that way. I've never seen it, but maybe somebody has made that decision. What most of the time happens is, we make our own decisions, and so often they're self-serving and bad, and we bring on ourselves bad consequences, which beat us up so much that eventually God shows us that, you know what, we need Jesus. I mean, remember in the Garden of Eden, when God placed Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden, told them they could eat of any tree in the garden. There may have been thousands of trees, fruit-bearing trees in the garden. He said, look, you can eat of any of the trees in the garden except one. Okay, one out of thousands. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat the fruit of that tree lest you die. Where is that one, Lord? Will you point that one out to us? And you know the story. Satan took the form of a serpent. 
beguiled Eve. She ate the fruit, gave to Adam, and he did eat. And they fell. When they ate that fruit, it was their declaration of independence from God. They were essentially saying, God, we know what you've said. We know what you've told us to do. But we think we know better what's best for our lives than you do. And because we are their descendants, each of us has been born with that same kind of rebellious spirit. We grow up, especially in our teenage years, we know everything. It's amazing to me how much dumber I am today than when I was a teenager. I mean, I don't know how that works. Because I used to know a lot more when I was a teenager than I do today. In fact, I knew everything. Okay? My parents didn't know anything. I certainly knew what was was best for my life. And I was going to do what I thought was best. And we do that, don't we? Nobody's going to tell us what to do. Certainly not God. And we go ahead and make one bad decision after the other and we reap the consequences which beat us up to the point where one day we finally come to our senses, hopefully, and say, you know what, Lord? Uh, I haven't been doing so well running my own life. I need you to take control. Now, that's where ministry comes in. Ministry is the privilege, really, okay, of helping people who have made one bad decision after another get a fresh start in life. And that fresh start comes the moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Didn't Paul the Apostle say at that point all things pass, old things pass away and all things become new? Do you realize that when you became a Christian, you got a new life? You got new attitudes. You got a new outlook, a new world view. You got new values, new goals. All things became new. And hopefully the most important thing that happened to you is that you stopped wanting to do what you thought was best and you started to seek God about His will for your life. Very important. But I love the fact that when we, you know, God, we say to God basically, although we don't verbalize it, God, I know better than you what's best for my life. God says, really? All right, let's see you do it. All right? Go for it. And we're out there making all these decisions and bad choices and we're getting beat up all over the place. Finally, we come to God bruised and bloody and say, Lord... I guess maybe I was wrong. And here's the deal. God uses those bad decisions and all those consequences not to forsake us, but to embrace us, to get us to come to him finally. And so I just so thank the Lord for that, that it's a decision to follow Christ, a decision that is born out of a desire, a desire that usually comes as we are beaten up enough by life where we eventually realize we need the Lord in our lives to take control. But then he said, you know, if anyone desires to come after me, he said, let him deny himself or herself. Self. What is self? Well, self is basically our fallen nature. Self is that thing we inherited from our father, Adam. Again, that attitude within us that says, I'm going to do what I want to do. I want to satisfy my desires, my wants, my goals, my pleasure. And I'm going to do what I want. See? Now, once we get saved, that rebellious nature doesn't go away. God simply adds His nature to it. And now we have the Spirit in us and self fighting with each other for dominance. Let me just say this to you. Do you realize that you, and I'm talking about me too, us, we are our own worst enemies when it comes to our relationship with God? Do you realize that? I don't know if you realize that. 
Okay, it took me a long time to figure out that the guy I shave in the morning, he's my worst enemy. Because you realize, you read your Bible, there is something, we want to obey God as Christians, but there's something inside of us that wants to do our own thing. itself, Rooted in our fallen nature. And Paul nails it in Galatians 5 verse 17 where he says, the flesh or our fallen nature or self wars against the spirit so that these two are in constant conflict with each other so that I don't always do the things that please God. Wasn't that true? But you can't serve two masters. See, this is what blows my mind today with the church and so many in the church and what they're getting fed from their pastors. They're being taught that you don't crucify self because you can't serve two masters. One of those masters has to die. And God says crucify self so you can be led by the Spirit. But today people are being taught, no, 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 no. We don't crucify self, we build it up. Self-esteem teaching. The church is full of it. But the word esteem means to build up, to honor, exalt. Am I supposed to build up, honor, exalt self? Show me anywhere in the New Testament where I'm supposed to do that. Folks, self doesn't need to be built up. It's the monster that needs to be killed. It's the thing that wants to control our lives. And therefore, every day I battle with self for who's going to have control of me, either the spirit or am I going to give in to my fleshly fallen nature and do what is contrary to what God wants. If I do, I'm not following Jesus, though. And so we have to deny self. We have to crucify self. That only happens through the power of the spirit as you walk with the Lord. Draw close to him in prayer. Stay in the word. This strengthens your spirit and by God's grace allows you to obey the spirit of God and not give in to your fallen nature. And Jesus said then, discipleship is all about taking up your cross daily. We said earlier that taking up the the cross is an implement of death. It symbolizes death. And of course, if you're going to take up your cross, you've got to die to self to follow Jesus, that's true. But there's more to it than just that because uh, taking up your cross, the cross also um, really um, signifies the, the willingness to, to endure shame, embarrassment, reproach, rejection, persecution, and even martyrdom for the cause of Christ. In other words, willing to pay. When he said, take up your cross, you got to be willing to do that. But what, he is, what the Lord was saying is be willing to suffer shame for my name's sake. See, the cross represents the suffering that is ours because of our relationship with Jesus. And here's the thing. Once you publicly declare your allegiance to Christ, guess what? The world is going to declare war on you. And that starts with your families oftentimes, your close friends. How many of us lost good friends once we got saved? Now, some of that was our fault. In our zeal to bring them to Christ, we badgered them to death, drove them away sometimes, but we we meant well, okay? We meant well. But I, I think for the most part, they ran away because the light that was in us, well, doesn't mix well with the darkness in them. But that's one of the prices that we have to be willing to pay if we come to Christ. Uh, losing our friends, losing, you know, committing social suicide, Maybe losing a promotion at work because your boss doesn't want one of you Bible thumpers in that position because, again, your life is too much of a rebuke to their life. 
Let me just quote to you something Pastor John MacArthur said along these lines. I think it was very relevant. He said, and I quote, Christ does not call disciples to himself to make their lives easy and prosperous, but to make them holy and productive. Willingness to take up his cross is, is the mark of a true disciple. As the hymnist wrote, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. MacArthur goes on to say, those who make initial confessions of their desire to follow Jesus Christ but refuse to accept hardship or persecution are characterized as the false, fruitless souls who are like rocky soil with no depth. They wither and die under threat of the reproach of Christ. Many people want a no-cost discipleship, but Christ offers no such option. End quote. Well, then he said, Then and only then can you follow me. Again, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Look, the only way we know if somebody is a true disciple of Christ is are they following Jesus? Okay? I mean, again, none of us are perfect. But I know in my life, there's been a fundamental shift from how I used to live my life to the way I live it now. Because the Holy Spirit has come inside of me, has made me a new creation, given me a new heart, new attitudes, and I desire to follow Jesus. I don't always do it perfectly. I often mess up because I'm still fighting the flesh just like you are. But there should be a fundamental change in our lives if we're truly born again. We should be following Jesus. 1 John 2.6 He who says he abides in him, anyone who says that I'm in Christ, ought himself also to walk just as Jesus walked. Romans 8.14 For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and, of course, the daughters of God. And Jesus himself said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they what? Follow me. My sheep follow me. And again, the only way that we know is if we're really Christians, are we following Jesus do we desire to do his will do we desire to please the heart of the father alright well that was the bulk of the message the principle of discipleship let's quickly look at two more and I say quickly I mean it second was the paradox of discipleship verse 25 for whoever desires to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it that sounds like a paradox doesn't it it sounds like Jesus is saying to die is to live and to live is to die. Well, essentially he is saying that. And the world listens to that and goes, are you nuts? You Christians are, are whacked out. What do you mean to live is to die and to die is to live? How does that work? Here's how it works, okay? The Lord is saying that whoever lives only for this earthly physical life, who refuses to deny themselves now for Christ's sake, opting instead to do their own thing, well, they're going to lose the opportunity for eternal life. But whoever is willing to give up this life to die to self and to live for Jesus now will find eternal life. Look, every person has a choice when it comes to how they will live their life. He or she can either go for it now and lose it forever or they can lose it now and gain it forever. It all comes down to what you think is more valuable, this life now or eternal life then. But before you make that decision, Jesus wants to reason with you. That's what verse 26 is all about. 
It's an appeal to your better judgment on the matter. Essentially to plead with people to make the right decision. He says, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? If you seek to save your life, if you seek to find life apart from Jesus, you're going to lose it. In other words, Jesus is here giving to you, and this is very important, Jesus is here giving to you and me God's estimate of the value of the human soul. He is saying it is worth more than the whole world. Why? Because the world is temporary, but your soul is eternal. The Bible says very plainly, this world is passing away. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away. So this life is not eternal. This life is going to pass away. And you can invest all your life, all your time, all your resources in this life, but you're going to be a loser eventually. But if you die now to self to live for the Lord, you are storing up for yourself treasures in heaven that will never be taken from you. Look, let me just, as I bring this to a close, relate to you something Jesus said was very important with regard to this subject. Luke 12:15 remember what he said he said take heed and beware of covetousness which is lusting for anything in this world take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses and then he went on to reinforce that principle with a parable he said the fields of a certain man yielded a bumper crop and the guy said to himself what am I going to do with all these crops? I ha- my barns are not big enough to store them in. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and then I'll have plenty of room to store all my crops, put all my goods there, and I can say to my soul, soul, kick back and take it easy. You've got many goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus said, God says to that man, you fool. Tonight your soul is going to be required of you. In other words, tonight... You're going to die. And then who is going to get all the things you worked so hard to acquire? And Jesus said, so is every person who lays up for themselves treasures on earth but is not rich toward God. What is every person? A fool. The person who uses this life to lay up for themselves treasures for this life is a fool. Because those treasures are short-lived And they are sacrificing their eternity for those things. When I look around today at people who are exchanging their eternal soul for a few years of cheap pleasure or fame or popularity or worldly riches, I think it's an absolute tragedy. Satan has deceived them into trading what is priceless for what is essentially worthless. Look it. God values your soul so much He sent his only begotten son to come down to this earth to redeem you and I from destruction, from hell. That's the value that God puts on your soul. And yet people sell out to Satan for some worthless trinkets and earthly pleasures. And in the process, here's what the people of the world say about us. They laugh at us. They think we're fools for giving up this life for some pie-in-the-sky hope of heaven someday. But that's how the world always challenges 
God's people. In fact, I'm sorry to say, sometimes it's people in the church that challenge God's people not to go all the way for Jesus. I remember the story of Jim Elliott, who was a missionary to the Aka Indians. Jim was studying to be a medical doctor before he became a missionary. And at one point, God worked in his heart, and he began to announce to his family that he was leaving medical school to become a missionary in Ecuador. And you know what his family said? They were all believers. They said, Jim, you can serve the Lord without going all that way. Come on. Don't be a fool. Don't give up a life of security and, you know, wealth to be a missionary in Ecuador. You know what Jim said? Famous words. He said, that man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Nobody is a fool who gives up this life to live for Jesus now because they're going to gain something that won't. You can't keep this life. You can lay up for yourself treasures on the earth, but the earth is passing away and all the lust of it. But he who does the will of God will abide forever and inherit a reward that will never fade away. Look, let me just close with Hebrews 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, we, we read about some of the great examples of faith throughout the history of the world. And I want to key in on what it says about Moses. Okay, In Hebrews 11, verse 24 through 26, let me read it to, to you from the New Living Translation. It says, It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose to share the, op- the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his reward. Let me just paraphrase. Moses was in line to become the next pharaoh of Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world in Scripture. Egypt was the dominating world power at that time. So in essence, Moses was next in line to become king of the whole world. But he realized, even if he could become king of the whole world, he couldn't enjoy those riches and that glory forever. He thought it better, wiser, to trade in earthly pleasures and glory right now to serve God, to inherit someday an eternal glory, an eternal riches, an eternal joy that will never be taken from him. So he gave up his life now to serve God. He lost his life, you might say, and he wound up gaining it for eternity, right? That was 3,500 years ago Moses made that decision to give up this life to live for God. You think he regrets today the decision he made back then to lose his life while he was on the earth to gain life forever? You think he regrets that decision? I don't think he regrets it for a second. The more important question is, 3,500 years from now, are you going to rejoice in or regret the decision you make today whether or not to follow Jesus Christ and lose your life now to gain it for eternity? Or will you opt to gain it now and lose it for eternity? That's the most important decision. And that's the one Jesus is really presenting here. He's saying, look, it's not easy being my disciple. You've got to deny yourself. Daily, take up your cross. Follow me. Look at the persecution. Look at the ridicule that I have endured and will endure in the future. 
are you willing to count the cost and to give your life to me? But I want you to know something. If you choose not to, and you don't have to go to the cross, it's your decision. You don't have to follow me, Jesus is saying. But if you decide not to follow me because you want to gain for yourself all this world has, you better enjoy it. And I tell people, look, because there's a lot of atheists running around today. Neo-atheism is on the rise, okay? Everybody, a lot of young people think it's real hip to be an atheist today, okay? And it's a veiled, what it is is a veiled statement of saying, look, I want to just live for pleasure. I don't want to follow Jesus because I can't do what I want to do. But I tell people like that, well, if that's your decision, and that's yours to make, then you better suck every drop of sweetness out of this life like you would an orange cut it in half and you suck every drop of sweetness out of it because when it's done, it's done. There's nothing left. There will be no sweetness in eternity for you. But weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, no rest day or night for as long as eternity is. But if you receive Christ, no, I'm not going to candy coat it. It's not easy to be a disciple of Christ. I mean, it is very difficult at times to live for the Lord. But as Peter said to Jesus, when he said, are you also going to stop following me? Peter says, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. And that's the heart of all true disciples. It may not be easy to follow Christ, but the world is nothing I want anymore. No turning back. No turning back. Amen? Father, we thank you that you have given us a choice. Even though we made bad choices, Lord, we maybe some of us have really messed our lives up. But Lord, you even use those bad decisions to bring us to the one decision that will change our eternity for the good. And so, Lord, thank you. And I just pray for everybody in this room, or everyone who will be listening on CD or on the radio to this message. That, Lord, you will work in their hearts and reason with them about how so many are willing to trade eternity for a few years of earthly pleasure. And what a sad choice that really is. Lord, give them grace to stop, see where they're going, to repent, and to come to you, to embrace you, Lord, to be a disciple. That they might walk with you, that you might give them the grace to be all that you want them to be. But Lord, we just so thank you that you're giving us a choice to come and follow after you. We ask you to strengthen us, Lord, in that decision. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.